WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts. <laughs> From WNYC. Yes. And NPR. You ready, Robert? Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm Jan Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krilowicz. This is Radio Lab. The podcast. The podcast. Today on Radio Lab, we are. Well, I actually don't even know what we're doing. <laughs> I know we're revisiting some old question, but you've kept me in the dark. So what are we doing today on the podcast? Well, today we're going to check in with... Who, who's here? Somebody oh. who you might remember, actually. Oh, hi, Robert. How are you doing? Uh, can you just tell me who you are? Uh, just say, I'm Josh, and where you are, and what you do, and stuff. Uh, I'm Joshua Green. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard University. And, and, and you may remember... Wait a second. Grow you remember this, like in the morality show? Sure. I mean, Josh was the guy with the moral puzzles. Uh, I study moral judgment and decision-making. Are you going to get into the whole uh-huh. baby, would you kill your baby question? Yes, exactly, oh, exactly. Man. So for those of you who, who need to follow this, in that earlier radio lab, right. we, we described the last episode of the TV show MASH. It's wartime. There's an enemy patrol coming down the road. You are hiding in the basement with some of your fellow villagers. Let's kill those lights. And the enemy soldiers are outside. They have orders to kill anyone that they find. Quiet. Nobody make a sound until they've passed us. So there you are. You're huddled in the basement. All around you are enemy troops, and you're holding your baby in your arms. Your baby with a cold, a bit of a sniffle. And you know that your baby could cough at any moment. If they hear your baby, they're going to find you and the baby and everyone else, and they're going to kill everybody. And the only way you can stop this from happening is cover the baby's mouth. But if you do that, the baby's going to smother and die. If you don't cover the baby's mouth, the soldiers are going to find everybody, and everybody's going to be killed, including you, including your baby. Then you have the choice. Would you smother your own baby to save the village? Or would you let your baby cough, knowing the consequences? And, 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 and make clear for me why, where we're going with this, Robert. <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> you asked me a question at the time. And, and how many people chose to kill their baby? About half. Wow. That's not bad. What do you mean it's not bad? <laughs> You're in favor of killing the baby. Well, what what would you do? Me? I would never I would I wouldn't even consider I would kill the baby. You would? The village will go on to have a hundred babies. Your baby is just one. <laughs> my baby is my world. My baby is my universe. So I don't. You're going to erase all those people based on your one well, child? 
But wait, first of all, the audience should know that Chad Abumrah does not have a child of his own yet. <laughs> okay, now now we have the benefit of time passing. Yeah. Just out of sheer curiosity, now that you have a child and you've looked into that child's face <laughs> over and over and over again, I'm just curious, would you... Kill? Is this the whole reason we're doing no, this podcast? No, 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 like, no, 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 I'm going to, no, you know, right. no, people shouldn't worry. But just out of curiosity, what would you do? Would I kill the baby? Would I? Your yeah. baby, not a baby, your baby. Would you like to see a little picture of him? While you're doing <laughs> no, I don't want to see a photo. I know what a meal looks like, crying out loud. So just no. See, here's uh, I. I have thought about this actually because people send us emails about this mm-hmm. for some reason. Um, um, I don't really know. I mean, the thing is, though. I mean, now this is not just like an abstract baby, but it's my baby. Well, that does change everything, obviously. So, so I'm kind of in a place where I I don't really know. I frankly don't know. Mm-hmm. Wait, let me just think about this. I don't know. It's kind of an impossible question because, like, in order to answer it truthfully, which is I, I would not kill my baby, I'd have to sacrifice a principle, which is, like, not as important to me as my baby, but almost. That principle being? Well, that sometimes you have to sacrifice something very dear for the greater good. I just think that that's a really, I mean, not to get all communistic mm-hmm. on you, but that's a really important idea to me. And, and in this case, by the way, the, the calculus of what is about to happen if the baby costs is really not known to you. Well, I mean, if, you, you know, if you're the philosopher king and you give me two options, one is to kill my baby to save the village or to allow my baby to live, in which case everybody dies. If those are the only two options, then I still feel like you kind of have to kill the baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I could do that. I don't think any father could do that. So my sort of pathetic answer at this point is I can't kill my baby, but then I can't sacrifice the village. So I think I would just um, like close my eyes and wish I was somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea is that, you know, when you think about this case, on the one hand, you have an intuitive emotional response that says, no, this is terrible. Killing a baby or killing my own baby, even worse. At the same time, a different system within your brain is saying, look, this is as horrible as this is. This is a sensible thing to do. It's the only sensible thing to do because if you do nothing, everyone will die. Whereas if you kill the baby, then at least you and the other people can live. And uh, what, what the evidence suggests is that these two competing moral perspectives are really grounded in different parts of the brain, and the competition has not been resolved. So that's where we were the last time. Right. Now I want to step forward for a second and think about it um, a little more deeply. All right. If our sense of right and wrong comes from like these competing brain systems, let me revisit the question, are our brains built to favor certain outcomes? Hmm. Let's suppose that you are walking alongside a lake and you see a, a, a girl drowning right in front of you and she's screaming for help, but you're wearing a very expensive suit. Hmm. Should you jump into the lake and save her? No. <laughs> no, of course, of course you should, yes. <laughs> you mean like the suit is the only thing that's, that right. would prevent so me from doing that? Yeah yeah, 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 jump in. But now suppose you're walking down past your mailbox and there's a letter in the mailbox which says, Please give us $1,000 so we can help save girls on the other side of the globe. Girls you'll never meet, girls whose screams you'll never hear, but there are girls in trouble on the other side of the world. Go help them. And so wait, so the, the equivalence is that you jump into the lake, you save the girl who's drowning. One-on-one. Or yeah. you send the check and you save the girl who 
is so, uh, in peril in, in some peril, way. Yeah. A girl, not a that girl. Girl, a girl. A girl. Somewhere on the other side of the globe. I see. So the question is, uh, to go to Josh is, if you didn't give the $1,000, would that make you a bad guy? Right. Well, there is something funny about these cases, right? That, that most of us say that, of course, you have to, to, to rescue the drowning child, but you know, it's, you're not a saint if you don't give your money over to, to, to save the children on the other side of the world. But you're certainly not a terrible person or so it seems to us. And so, yes, there's this... There's this uh, Putting aside whether it's a good or bad, whether you're a good or bad person, sure. how do you explain the difference? Well, I, I think it makes a lot of evolutionary sense. Uh, that is, you know, a lot of our social emotional responses are geared towards life in the kind of environment in which our ancestors evolved. And it makes sense that we would have uh, moral buttons, so to speak, that get pushed by the kinds of things that our ancestors might have encountered. Because tens of thousands of years of evolution have, have essentially been quietly tugging at your heart in, in those kinds of situations. Exactly, exactly. Whereas the, ide the idea of spending a minimal amount of money to save the life of some stranger on the other side of the world that, you've never, that you're never going to meet... Um, that's a totally new modern phenomenon. It's not something that our emotions are, are prepared for. Well, now, doesn't that leave us in a funny place? Because I think, I think it does. What happens if the most important questions that we face as a species or as a group involve thinking abstractly? Yep. Those problems, pollution, global warming, and things like that, those aren't really local problems. They're global problems. Exactly. This is, I think, that gets right at the heart of the matter. And this is why I do this research. I think that the kind of thinking that we apply to those problems, what we call common sense, is really hunter-gatherer common sense, or at least a lot of it is. And uh, if we're going to face these big problems that we're, our minds were not designed by evolution to handle, then we have to learn to turn off parts of our brain that are getting in the way and turn on other parts that may seem like the wrong parts to be using. So he's saying that we should tamp down our primitive emotional instincts that are in our reptile brain, those instincts that say, don't kill your baby, like that stuff. And then we should, we should amp up somehow the, uh, the part of us that thinks more abstractly about the greater good and about people that aren't uh, right in front of us. Yeah. So, so if you're sitting there with a soda can in your hand and you think, I guess I can just throw this on the street and you go, clink, clinkity, 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 clink. Your primitive part is saying, well, I can get away with that because yeah. no one's seeing it. But, of course, the calculating part would say, well, if we all do this, then the world will be full of trash. And it's problems like that that in order to solve them, you have to yeah, think that's abstractly. Interesting. That's interesting. Joke. You know why that's interesting? Why? Because it might be – I mean, I think he might be wrong. I mean, because we encountered this already. He's asking us to rely on a part of our brain that, you know, is not exactly Hercules. <laughs> do you remember the the thing we talked about in the in, – uh, what show was that, Soren? What was it? The The Choice Show. Uh, with Baba Shiv. Can we get that audio and throw that into the mix? I'm uh, Baba Shiv. I'm a professor here at uh, the Stanford Graduate School of Business in marketing. A lot of my research has to do with the brain. And tricking people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Robert, I want to tell you about one particular experiment that he did. Okay. So the experiment is pretty straightforward. It goes like uh, this. He got a bunch of subjects together. He said, okay, I'm going to give you all a number. Give you a number. On a little card, you're going to read the number, and I want you to commit that number to memory. Take as much time as you want to memorize the number. And then he says, You're now going to walk to the next room and recall the number. And that's what subjects think. That subjects think that they're going to be doing So, so they, they know they're going to be in one place, getting a number, going to another place, reciting that number. That's right. That's all they know. That's all they know. What they don't know 
is that not everybody is getting the same kind of number. So some people get a seven-digit number, some people get a two-digit number. That I can do, by the way. I think I can do two digits. No, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> All the subjects have to do is they've got to memorize a number, walk out of room one, down the hall to room two, then recite their number. Now, just imagine, you with me? Mm-hmm. person with a two-digit number in their head was walking out of room one. One, two is my number. I can definitely remember this. Down the hall. At the same time, someone with seven digits in their head. One, two, two, eight, nine, three, six. Walks down the hall. Two, eight, nine. Now, here is where the trickery comes in. As they're walking down the hall, mid-memorizing, all of a sudden... Excuse me. They pass a lady in the hallway, and she's holding something. Sorry to interrupt you, but would you like a snack? Um, Uh, uh, sure. She says, here, have a a snack, just as our our way of saying thanks for participating in the study. You can have one of two snacks you choose. You can choose between either A, a big fat slice of chocolate cake, or B, a nice bowl of fruit salad. Hmm. Meanwhile, they've both got these numbers still in their head. Now, here's the weird thing. When they finally make their choice... What would you like? Some yummy cake or some healthy fruit? The the people... This is crazy. The people with two digits in their head... You know, I love cake, but I think I'll take the fruit. Almost always choose the fruit. It's healthy. Whereas the people with seven digits in their head almost always choose the cake. You know, the cake... I want the cake. And we're talking by huge margins here. It was significant. I mean, this was like, in some cases, a 20, 25, 30-point difference. The, the lesson we took from that, which is the lesson you are not telling me now, is that your rational system, the hope of humankind part of your brain, is very, very suggestible, weak, and almost barely struggling to manage the situation. Oh, Give it see, something uh, too much to do, and oh, man, it just... It eats I would, sweet cake. I would take a very different lesson from that study. Imagine if you told those people who say, look, here's how your mind works. When you have to mem- remember a long number, it's going to clog up your memory and it's going to make it harder for you to resist the temptation to have chocolate cake instead of fruit salad. Um, but I'm telling you this now. You're armed with the truth about how your own mind works. Here's a long number. Go. <laughs> right? Now, how many of those people are going to be able to resist the chocolate cake? I, I think a lot more of them are. Right. Has anyone done that? Has anyone said, okay, I'm sending you down and there's going to be this siren, seductive, cake-handling uh, temptress and let's see if you can resist? Has that ever been done? It hasn't. I don't know if it's been done, but I'm, I'm willing to place bets on how that will turn out. That is that we can recognize the quirks and the flaws and the inconsistencies in our cognitive systems and do something better that makes more sense. Hmm. Is a... Does that, uh, is this just blind optimism? I mean, or does he have evidence to support this? Well, one thing that gives me hope is something called the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect. Yes. So the Flynn effect is something that was noticed by a philosopher and a political scientist named uh, Jim Flynn. <laughs> I knew it was going to be Flynn. Yeah. It would have been really surprising if his name was Zaronsky. Uh, that's right. No, that they, yeah. they, they, they line these things up so that they make sense. Um, okay, the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect. What Flynn noticed is that over the course of the 20th century, IQ scores kept going up and up and up in the industrialized world, so much so that by his estimates, a person of average intelligence in 1900 would register somewhere near the line uh, for mental retardation by present standards. 
Um, hmm. now how could this be? Same test, by the way. Same, so I mean, everything, everything else. Being thing, I mean, that's why it's it's a bit complicated because the tests have changed and the norms have changed. But doing your best to control for all of that, by his estimates, we have gained about thirty IQ points as a society in the last hundred years, which is enormous. Now, there are a lot of people who would say, well, the IQ test really doesn't really tell you that we're getting smarter or really different. But if you ask Josh, well, why would we be getting better at the IQ test? He says that in the last hundred years, people learned how to think abstractly. Crude oil things that we take for granted, like thinking about abstract things like a market, where a market is not a particular place with fruit stands, but a more abstract space, so to speak, in which goods and services are exchanged for money. These two bits, these two bits, these two bits, 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 Things like that uh, have become part of the, our cognitive backdrop. Meaning, and I think this is how Josh would argue it, these are deeply abstract occupations. Gasoline, natural gas. To try to figure out patterning and numbers and future values. Crude oil, natural gas. And it, it, I think Josh is arguing that it can change you. Cultural evolution, essentially, has given us much higher IQs when it comes to thinking about a lot of things. Wow. So you're uh, saying that we, we are learning to exercise our rational systems. It's not that exactly. we're growing any new brain cells or making right. a, a whole new set of connections. It's just that what we've got, we're just making more muscular? Exactly. It's like learning to play an instrument, right? I mean, when you first start playing guitar, you're totally useless. It sounds like a dying animal. Uh, and But, you know, give it, give it a couple of years and it can sound great. And basically we're... Well, but that's a very specific sort of motor skill. Right. But being better at abstraction and thinking about right and wrong in a new way, that seems, that seems what you're saying is kind of daft. Well, I mean, you think that you can exercise yourself into being a better man and a better woman and a better species? I think that's right. I think that we can learn to play our dorsolateral prefrontal cortices better. At the end of the day, you think that the pressure of dealing with these big abstract problems will eventually change our minds. Well, I hope so. I mean, the problem is that as a species, we tend to learn from trial and error. Um, the problem with issues like nuclear proliferation and global warming is that we only have one Earth. And you know, what I hope is that if we have to learn the lesson from some kind of trial and error, the errors are not so big that we don't get another chance. But I also think that there's reason for optimism. Or at least... You hope? I think, you, yeah, at least I hope, you, you know. But I mean, I, I, that may just be because I'm an optimistic person. I mean, I might just sort of throw up my hands and say, forget it. I'll go do something else and enjoy my time before we kill ourselves. But um, I think that, you know, I, that it, it makes sense. It's worth a shot to see if we can teach ourselves to live uh, happily on a, on, a, on a small planet. Aren't you the teacher? Wow. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty pedantic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Teaching the world. <laughs> well, no, I kind of I mean, I certainly think anyone normal would be rooting for you. Absolutely. Well, thanks. I yeah. appreciate that. There are a lot of abnormal people who root for me, but I hope there are some normal <laughs> ones, too. Josh Green is an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard University. He's written these ideas in an essay in a volume called What's Next, edited by Max Brockman. And hey, did you, when you were talking with him, did you ask him... Uh, about uh, his babies? What, would he kill his babies? You know, I, should, I forgot. 
any case, we should we should wrap. Yeah, we okay. should kill this baby. This is the, the we have to see our funding credit. Right. Uh, so Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation, Corporation right. for Public Broadcasting, and one other, the Sloan Foundation. Yeah. Which, by the way, is supporting Kepler, the Philip Glass opera about the great 17th century astronomer. It's premiering November 18th, right down the street from me at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Collins. Thanks for listening. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.